Welcome to episode 67 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, also a family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. This is our last podcast of 2020. It feels like this has been a three-year ordeal and we've done a thousand podcasts this year. It is our sincere hopes that each of you have a safe, healthy, and less eventful 2021. Amen to that. So on this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem daily, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can now get free CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for just for listening to us blather on. Uh, go to iafp.mclms.net to claim it. This week, we're going to be discussing HPV vaccine, diagnosing inflammatory bowel disease in children, and COVID infectivity. Uh, the first poem is mine, so I'll jump into it. This is from New England Journal of Medicine by Lee and uh, Ploner. It's a Swedish study. Uh, HPV vaccination, and the risk of invasive cervical cancer. So uh, the data to date are limited about whether HPV vaccination actually prevents invasive cervical cancer. We know that it does uh, reduce the risk of CIN3 and other precancerous lesions, but it hasn't been around long enough, and there have uh, not been large enough randomized trials to, to identify uh, whether it reduces invasive cancer, which is obviously the goal. So this Swedish study used data from their national health registry with more than 1.6 million girls and women who were between the ages of 10 and 30 years between 2006 and 2017. In Sweden, HPV vaccination is offered for girls age 13 to 17 starting in 2007, and it expanded to younger and older girls and women in 2012. Uh, cervical cancer screening in Sweden with pap smears um, begins at age 23 and is performed at intervals of three to seven years, depending on age. They used a quadrivalent vaccine similar to what's used in the U.S. The researchers reviewed registries with information about cancer diagnoses and vaccination and linked them. Over a million patients didn't get the HPV vaccine, while about a half million received at least one dose during the period of study. At baseline, girls who were vaccinated were more likely to have a Swedish-born mother and more likely to come from a high-income family, so they had to adjust for these differences. The main outcome was the incidence rate ratio for invasive cervical cancer, adjusted for age, uh, calendar year of immunization, and then parental and residential and socioeconomic characteristics. This incidence rate ratio is just the ratio of the incidence in vaccinated versus unvaccinated. So a ratio of less than one indicates that there's a protective effect. So the fully adjusted IRR for all participants was 0.37 for invasive cervical cancer with a confidence interval of 0.21 to 0.57. If you just looked at girls who were vaccinated at a younger age where you might expect to see a greater benefit, the IRR was 0.12. That was also significant. And for those vaccinated between 17 and 30, it was 0.47. So this highlights the benefit of earlier vaccination compared to later you know, before the onset of sexual activity. 
Uh, bottom line, HPV vaccination was found to be associated with a significant reduction in the likelihood of invasive cervical cancer. The IRR was 0.37. This reduction was even greater in women vaccinated before the age of 17. That group had only 12% the number of invasive cervical cancers as the unvaccinated group. John? This is great news. I've been waiting for this kind of a study for at least 10 years because I've often wondered how this will affect invasive cervical cancer and ultimately, of course, mortality from cervical cancer. Today, there are about 4,000 women per year in the U.S. who die of cervical cancer. And if this vaccination rate turns out to be effective in preventing death as well, then that potentially could bring the number of deaths down to four to 500 per year from cervical cancer. So we still have more research to be done in this area, but this is very encouraging. I also wonder whether eventually the frequency interval for pap smear screening or HPV screening now will be reduced even further from five years in women who've been vaccinated. So I suspect in another five or 10 years, we will see a, that kind of a recommendation, pap smears in vaccinated women, uh, or HPV screening rather, would probably end up being perhaps every 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that, or perhaps uh, a couple of times uh, earlier on in maybe at age 25 and 30, but then once you've established um, that they don't have HPV, again, this is very speculative and probably going to have to be answered with modeling uh, studies. Henry? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I had a similar question. Uh question to whether this meant that we could eventually get rid of pap smears altogether or just use HPV only approaches. But um, I think you've really hit on that quite well. I, I do want to at least acknowledge that this is a registry-based study and there are some limitations. But you know the Scandinavian studies, that they have amazing population-based registries that are linked so that they really do capture nearly 100% of the people residing within their borders. And so they are remarkable in their ability to capture and track trends over time. Um, there is a second point to these kinds of studies that, you know, the HPV vaccination like many are controversial, and there was some early concerns that uh, if I vaccinate my child, my daughters and sons, will that mean that they are going to increase acting out sexually? But I've seen um, no data supporting that notion at all. Yeah, and I, I want to add that the USPSTF, when it updated the recommendation for cervical cancer screening, the main change was that they added the option of HPV only every five years. And when I looked at the data closely, um, the benefit of HPV plus cytology every five years compared to HPV alone didn't exist. There really wasn't any reduction in mortality or cancer incidence, just more biopsies. And so uh, I, I'm not a fan of co-testing. I think either cytology every three years or HPV every five years, there's still a lot of co-testing going on. It's not, the, the main harm is just more colposcopies and more biopsies, but don't there's no evidence that it provides any greater benefit than the HPV only. Henry, and the HPV testing uh, strategy has is attractive because uh, you can use um, contaminated urine samples for testing, and so you don't necessarily even need to have an office visit. So, in low resource environments, the HPV strategy is really attractive. Good point, Henry. Time for your quiz. Thank you. 
So myths are pretty pervasive in medicine, and the three of us have had a huge amount of fun over the years finding myth-busting studies such as the order of consuming fermented beverages and hangovers. And we've covered many of these in our podcasts, and this month's quiz, this episode's quiz, follows in that tradition. So the question is, which of the following do not appear to be a myth? A. Patients suffering from hemorrhoids should refrain from consuming hot chili peppers. B, vaccines cause autism. C, medical mayhem occurs more frequently on Friday the 13th. D, chocolate makes acne worse. Stay tuned. My dad used to have some saying, uh, Wein nach Bier, das rate ich dir. It's like wine after beer. I recommend that. And Bier before Wein, lass es sein. Beer before wine, let it go. Never made any sense to me, but I'm sure it's completely true. Thanks, Dad. Um, okay, so uh, the next, it's turn for it's a turn, time to turn to inflammatory bowel disease in kids and a really, um, I think, useful test that uh, we need to know more about. Henry? Thank you. Uh, this next poem asks the question, how accurate is fecal calprotectin testing in identifying children with inflammatory bowel disease? This was by Walker in the Archives of Diseases of Children this past October. And I want to point out first, this is a study that came out of primary care settings, and so it has pretty, pretty quick applicability to most of our listeners. Uh, they enrolled 195 children between the ages of 4 and 18 years of age who had had some kind of gastrointestinal problem, and the primary care clinician decided to do a fecal calprotectin assay. Now, we don't know exactly why they might have ordered this test, so they may have had a, a, an index of suspicion um, from the get-go. Regardless, they performed a quantitative ELISA-based fecal calprotectin assay, and if the level was over 100 micrograms per gram, um, that was considered a positive test. And the, the those children were then referred on to um, gastroenterologists for definitive diagnoses. Over the course of uh, roughly 12 months uh, follow-up after that initial um, assay, uh, the, was how they determined whether or not the child had had inflammatory bowel disease. So about half of the children were female and slightly more than half had at least one red flag criterion, such as bleeding, nocturnal symptoms, weight loss, anorexia, and so, so forth. Uh, only 13 children, about 7%, were ultimately diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. And when they did all of their uh, statistical manipulations, they found that the fecal calprotectin was about 100% sensitive, very sensitive, and about 91% specific. And more importantly was whether or not the test actually influenced clinician behavior. So about 83% of the patients that had a positive test result, they were ultimately referred, but still slightly more than half of the children who had a negative assay were also still referred, which goes back to my earlier point that maybe the uh, clinicians had a certain level of suspicion. So regardless, to me, the bottom line in this is that in a primary care setting where there might be some hint that the child might have inflammatory bowel disease, a negative um, fecal calprotectin assay pretty much rules out inflammatory bowel disease. 
Excellent. And, you know, the positive test, it, it reminds me, uh, looking back to um, the early days of EBM, they used to talk about things called a snout and a spin. So a highly sensitive test, if it's negative, rules out. And that's what we have here, 100% sensitive. If it's negative, it rules out. A spin is a highly specific test. If it's positive, rules in. And in this case, you know, if you have about 7% overall have IBD in this primary care population, those are odds of about 1 to 12, right? And then if the likelihood ratio is 11, you multiply that 1 by 11, you get now the new odds with a positive test are 11 to 12. That's about half. And so uh, about half of those kids with a positive test you could expect to be diagnosed. And that's certainly high enough where I think it's worth referring those positives on uh, for further evaluation. And, you know, also keeping in mind that, you know, the test isn't perfect um, and that if you have a an index of suspicion, a very high index of suspicion, you know, those kids as well. But it's a really, seems like a really useful test. John, any additional comments? This seems like a very helpful test. <clears throat> the other way that it's helpful is that it could be used to reassure parents and the patient uh, herself or himself that it looks like this is not a, a serious condition at this point, such as inflammatory bowel disease. So yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very useful test. This was uh, a learning lesson for me. And and would help in those cases where it's negative, help avoid further invasive testing, which you, you certainly want to do in kids, um, especially. So John, it's time for your poem. You're going to, we're going to have a, a COVID uh, study. Yes, it's not COVID week, but I really enjoyed this particular study, so I thought I would present it. Uh, this is a meta-analysis of the proportion of secondary cases of COVID in households and families. And by secondary infection, what I mean is that there's already a case in the household. And so how many, what proportion of the other people in that household or family become infected? Now, it's a meta-analysis that includes 44 studies of transmission within households, and there are an additional 10 studies of transmission within family units who may live in uh, two or three different settings. That is, where not all members of the family lived in the same household, but regardless, the results are very similar. The meta-analysis includes studies from many countries. Uh, there were 12, however, from China and five from the United States. The investigators followed the PRISMA meta-analysis guidelines, so this is a good meta-analysis. Unfortunately, the quality of the individual studies varied greatly. Some were high quality and some were not, and so the secondary infection rates may be under or overestimated, but this is the best data that we have so far. The result, the overall estimated secondary infection rate was 16.4% in households and 17.4% among families, which translates then to roughly one in six household or family contacts becoming infected. However, the secondary infection rates varied greatly from a low of less than 1% in one South Korean study to a high of 45% in an Italian study. So these averages really hide a lot of variation. Looking at the five U.S. studies, there were 232 cases in the 722 household contacts. So that's a 32% secondary infection rate in the United States studies. The infection rate was much lower when the index case was asymptomatic or presymptomatic, slightly under 1% versus 
versus symptomatic where the infection rate was 18%. Spouses were at the greatest risk of secondary infection, a 38% infection rate. Adults, not surprisingly, were more likely to transmit infection than children. And also the secondary infection rate itself was higher for adults, 15.2% than for children, about 8%. The percent of individuals within a household became infected very greatly, even within individual studies. Just as an example, in one study, in 25% of the households that were included, all of the individuals exposed became infected. So like I say, the average hides a great deal of variability. The authors conclude that household transmission remains an important venue for infection, especially when social mobility is reduced by social control, such as business and school closings. I did want to point out in closing that a prior study from China that we reviewed reported that household transmission can be reduced about 75% by wearing masks and frequent hand washing if these controls are put into effect prior to a symptomatic infection in the household. I think we have a major lesson here that I wish all of these people who are traveling during the holiday season knew. That is, okay, they're traveling, but wear your masks when you're visiting. That's going to be a hard sell in a lot in of the US. US yes. I mean, but you look at the South Korean rate, 0.7%, um, and that probably was in house uh, mask wearing and, and hand washing and distancing were, I, I would suspect, more likely. Early on, the Italian experience is probably from quite early in the pandemic when less was known and masks weren't available. And, you know, I've lived in Italy for probably four months out of the last few years. And there's bocce bocce, right? I mean, it's a very, <clears throat> you know, kissy, touchy, uh, lovely uh, culture of, of a very affectionate culture. And so, um, you're, let me just put it this way. You're much more likely to get hugged by an Italian than by a German. <laughs> experience. Uh, so anyway, I think, uh, you know, all of these cultural things can have an impact as well, even within households. Um, Henry, any final comments? Yeah, I have two uh, points. The first, the, the both of you have really eloquently described uh, what we just dis discussed last episode, that Swiss cheese model, that combination of hand washing, masks, physical distancing, um, and then combine that with testing and vaccines as a way of helping to stop the epidemic. Uh, my second point is more of a conundrum or a query, which is in light of uh, the recent news about this new strain that we're seeing in England and has probably been in the U.S. that's 50 percent more effect, uh, more infectious. Uh, what is that? How do we interpret these data in that light? So if the average of uh, one in six um, household contacts become infected with this new strain. If it was 50% more infectious, uh, that would translate into maybe one in four becoming infected. Yeah, we'll see. There's still a lot of, uh, a lot not known about that. And, um, you know, to what extent it was partially changes in behavior or COVID fatigue, but um, it'll be, you know, interesting in a grim way to see what, <laughs> yeah. how that pans out in, in, um, in the UK. And they're now talking about testing them. It's would the time to talk about it would have been two weeks ago, but anyway, that's how quickly we moved. Okay. Enough grumbling. Uh, <laughs> Henry, give us the answer to the quiz. The quiz, uh, asked the question, which of the following do not appear to be a myth? A, 
Patients suffering from hemorrhoids should refrain from consuming hot chili peppers. B. Vaccines cause autism. C. Medical mayhem occurs more frequently on Friday the 13th. D. Chocolate makes acne worse. In 2006, Altamari and colleagues published a uh, paper in the Diseases of the Colon and Rectum. It was a randomized crossover trial of hot chili capsules versus placebo in patients who had mild or had moderate to severe hemorrhoids. Now, the dose of hot chili capsules was they based it on some restaurant hotness scale that would normally cause tingling of the lips and tongue. Uh, It turned out that the chili peppers caused no more bleeding, swelling, itching, pain, or anal burning for up to two days following ingestion. Okay, so that's one myth down. Multiple studies have failed to show any association between vaccines and the development of autism. There was one noteworthy exception, and that was published in Lancet by Andrew Wakefield. This was later retracted by Lancet because it turned out that it was completely fraudulent, and Dr. Wakefield was removed from the medical register as a result. Nonetheless, that myth persists. We've previously debunked the myth of medical mayhem on Friday the 13th, so that leaves us with chocolate. It turns out that chocolate does make acne worse based on a randomized crossover uh, trial uh, that those who ate ate chocolate had roughly five more acne lesions compared to those who ate jelly beans who had roughly one fewer lesion, and that was published by DeLost and colleagues in the Journal of um, the American Academy of Dermatology. In 2016. So, what our mothers have told us about consuming chocolate was probably true. The correct answer is D chocolate does not make acne worse. So, I got a couple of comments there. First of all, um, I'm sorry, maybe jelly. Yeah, chocolate does make worse. Maybe jelly beans are an effective treatment for acne. It's not that the chocolate makes it worse, right? Okay. It didn't have a control. And the other one was, I think, um, you know, Scoville units are what they use to measure uh, spicy pepper, you know, strength of peppers. And I don't, if it just makes your lips tingle a bit, it's got to hurt, right? (laughs) To really be spicy. And we have a phenomenon, a, a clinical phenomenon known as fire in the hole the next morning after a particularly spicy meal. So I'm, I'm just saying that I, I think there is some, not necessarily related to hemorrhoids, but I think there, there is as those uh, peppers make their way through the digestive tract. They do wreak some havoc. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, John, you're going to give us a recommendation or a sort of an anti-recommendation, I guess. Yes. This one's a little tough really to refer or to recommend to everybody. Uh, but St. Augustine's Confessions is really a fascinating read. The first nine chapters describe his enormous struggle with belief in God and his eventual conversion to Catholicism. It's written as a conversation, which is more like a monologue, but it's a conversation with God in which he confesses his evil deeds and his youth and his gradual discovery of God. You know, I thought that James Joyce was the first to write in a stream of consciousness style, but Augustine's confession certainly tops Ulysses in my mind. It is really tough to get through it. Uh, In the subsequent chapters, though, St. Augustine takes up an exploration of the concept of memory of all things, and then takes on the meaning of time itself. Uh, He was not only a theologian, but also a philosopher. Next up for me, though, is St. Augustine's City of God. 
in which he describes his vision of the church on earth. And that is a vision that has had a profound effect on all branches of Christianity to this very day. What did you do wrong to punish yourself so to read these books? Oh my gosh. You're retired. Have fun. I, I'm going to stick with the new Michael Connolly and Joe Nesbo novels that are on my Kindle for well, Christmas. Okay. As the Germans would say, I held a, had a Bildungs, Bildungslöcke in my education, and I'm trying to make enough for that. Well, once you've read these for. Sanitsch said, What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So I think that applies here. Well, once okay. you've these uh, for your training reel, uh, wheels, uh, there's a, a short book by Umberto Eco, uh, who wrote The Name of the Rose, among other things. But there's a, a, a and I'm blanking on the, the name of the, uh, the, the book. It's less than 100 pages, and it's a series of letters between Umberto Eco as an atheist and a, uh, and a bishop. And it's a series of re- very um, uh, respectful conversations about um, the existence of life and its meaning. So, so you could take that on as your next tough read. Well, that actually Henry. sounds like fun. That one, that sounds, I love Echo. I've read a couple of his books. Okay. So um, happy holidays, everybody. Stay safe. Um, hope it's, uh, get some rest in. Um, be careful. And um, it's going to be a little bit different Christmas for many of us or holidays or Hanukkah or however you celebrate. Um, the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians uh, is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. The IFP designates this internet enduring activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. They adhere to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. It's the policy of the IFP to ensure balance, independence, objectivity, and scientific rigor in all of its educational activities. By way of disclosure, Henry and I are paid by Wiley as editorial consultants to write the poems, but we're not paid to do this podcast. The Earl, again, for CME is iafp.mclms.net. Hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Tell your friends we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates in the new year.